I am Zarina Dimitrova, a strategic partner and mentor to businesses in the process of transformation. Join me on Grow and Learn as we explore a range of topics from personal development and career advancement to relationship building and financial management. With practical advice, inspiring stories and expert interviews, we'll give you the tools you need to thrive in every aspect of your life. Join us as we share insights and strategies that can help you achieve your personal and professional growth objectives. Today we're going to be speaking to the only man in the world who managed to bring a startup to a billion dollar in sales within a short period of time. I'm speaking to Roy Ozing from Canada. Hi, Roy. Welcome. Hi, Zarina. Very nice to meet you and thanks so much for having me on your show. You're very welcome. Roy, what is your story? I mean, uh, it takes a special man to achieve such, a, such an audacious goal and now you're teaching people and you have a, a new book. Uh, which I want to hear all about, but let's hear your story first. What does it take? What kind of a man does it take to bring a startup to a billion dollars? I'm probably uh, unique in the in the sense that I did it a particular way that doesn't really conform with traditional approaches to running businesses. And we can get into that if you want. But basically, if I could point to one ingredient that... Um, uh, that I think I relied on more than anything else. And it was the ability to withstand high, high amounts of pain. I truly, uh, I truly believe that pain is a strategic concept and to advance new ideas and new ways of doing things. You really have to be able to tolerate the naysayers, the inertia, the momentum that's working against you day in and day out. And you have to be tenacious. You have to persevere uh, and continue to push forward in, in spite of, okay, the people around you, many of whom really don't want you to succeed. So I learned very early in my life from my mother that you needed to be hard, you needed to be in a fair way, but you needed to be focused, you need to move forward at, at literally whatever it took to get things done, not at the expense of other people, okay? And that's the point I want to make. But notwithstanding um, the sorts of pressures that one faces, uh, you just need to keep your feet moving and keep moving forward. And so I had an opportunity to lead an internet company in the very early days uh, from a startup. And basically, and I get goosebumps when I think about it, to be honest, because we uh, we were very fortunate to have applied some kind of unique, cool things to light fires in people and and get them convinced that our journey was a one that they wanted to be part of. And it took us to unbelievable performance, which in retrospect was a billion in sales. But, you know, we didn't start out going after a billion. We just started out trying to, to perform in a superlative way by doing things differently. And so I'm the kind of be different or be dead guy. I believe in that. And it's running through my veins and it keeps me awake at night and it drives me during the day. Mm -hmm. All right. So... Well, was there any defining moment in your personal life that made you think this way, that shaped you in this way, other than your the way your mother brought you up? No, there wasn't a tipping point. You know, everybody asks me that, and the answer is no. I I just I just grew up and then moved past university into business with this um, this desire to kind of observe what was going on around me and to do something different. And my logic was really simple. If you continue to stay in the herd and be like everybody else, first of all, you don't get noticed. And secondly, you don't add any unique value 
to people around you. I mean, if you can be different and unique in a way that people care about, then you're doing something special in the world. That wasn't something that suddenly was an aha moment for me. It was something that just I had and I kept applying it and applying it and applying it. I applied it in my career. I, I apply it. I'm a grandfather of four. I apply it as in my personal life. The whole notion of stepping out and doing things differently uh, just happens to be part of who I am. Um, the interesting thing to me is it's a hard concept to get people to buy into because they're so used to following the crowd. They're so used to what I call gargling Google, where when they want to find out how to do something, they go to Google and look at how somebody else has done it and they try to imitate it, which is really juxtaposed with the whole notion of creating new boxes to play in, creating you know, new playgrounds to play in. And that's the sort of thing that has been part of me since, you know, I think since I was born, although I can't have, I don't recall what I was like in the bassinet after my mother had me, but that's mm -hmm. just beyond me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, uh, this reminds me of the uh, school of thought of stoicism. And then um, there's this other newer age school of thought that tells you you need to be aligned to your purpose you need to do something that you're having pleasure with what do you think about um all of that how does it fit to the idea of um perseverance and going through pain do you need to go through pain and what kind of pain do you mean is it just perseverance and at what point if you're heading the wrong direction do you say stop and do you realize you don't need to persevere? What, what, are, what are these defining moments? Well, it starts out with you need a context for your life. You need to have an understanding about sort of where you want to go. And I say sort of because I find people spend way too much time trying to come up with a perfect plan mm -hmm. in an imperfect world, which is nonsensical in my view. So I'm, I'm this kind of like, let's just head west guy. Okay, so a reasonable plan for me is let's head west, let's come up with some uh, some critical objectives that we think are meaningful within that head west uh, purpose, and let's just start doing some stuff, okay, and learning from stuff, because we're not going to get it right the first time. We can't. How can anybody possibly believe in this kind of a world that we're in that you'll get it right the first time? You may, you may in retrospect, have gotten it close, but you never got it right. And so my experience has been that you, you come up with a with a just about right notion of where you want to end up and you just start doing stuff and modifying, okay, your your end game as you go. Okay. The point is as you're as you're trying to, to head west by deploying uh methods and I call them audacious moves that other people have not thought of and and you know think are outrageous, as you go through that, you get a whole lot of roadblocks. And it's really important just, just to persevere through those roadblocks towards your head west strategy. And so that's what I mean. I mean, don't spend all your time trying to perfect imperfection. That's silly. What you need to do is get it just about right, start executing towards it, learn as you go, and I call it planning on the run. Execute first, plan second. If you have that notion about doing things, you not only learn about what works and what, what, what doesn't work, you also end up at, at the destination that you should be, but you never would have known that when you start because you just don't have the information and the experience. And that's okay. I want to tell your audience, it's okay to not have a precise end game. In fact, I would say precision 
is is really a risk because you're spending way too much time on something that probably you know unless you're really lucky will never end up it won't you won't end up there you'll have to explore you'll have to fail a lot you'll have to try a lot and that's just life and let me tell you it works because i keep coming back to the fact that those are the sorts of things that i and my team did to get to a billion dollars in annual sales okay so this isn't this isn't kind of like stuff that's out in the cloud this stuff works and you can trust that it works because if I, if it can work for this Norwegian, it can work for anybody. Ah, are you Norwegian? I didn't know. <laughs> I yes, well, my grandfather was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so give us a bit more um, detail about the actual application of being audacious. What did you exactly do? And if you could share the name of the company, if it's known by people, and what were the exact steps that were that audacious to take you to this destination? Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, I joined a company called BC Telephone back in the day, which was a provincial telephone company in Canada. This was in the days when it was a monopoly. Okay. But it quickly entered into this deregulation phase that we all know about in the telecom space, uh, where we were evolving into a competitive uh, uh, organization. That particular organization ended up acquiring another telephone company in Canada and becoming a national player in cellular and, and telecom generally. The name of the company was TELUS. And TELUS was the company that I had the opportunity to lead the data business in. So it was in that environment, fast moving, a culture that really was engineering driven out of the days gone by. And we had to suddenly shift, okay, into a culture that was marketing and customer service driven, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was huge. There was no way that was going to happen using textbook stuff is mm. the point I want to make. So what we had to do is figure out some, some sort of human related moves to, to actually do that. And I'll, I'll give you a couple. If you, if you, you check out the book and this isn't a pitch for the book, which, which I won't do, but it does contain some practical things that work for me. But one simple thing was, and I want to make the point that everything that I did, everything that we did, was not done just to be different. It was done to be unique in a way that people cared about that in the end of the day would drive superlative performance. So as a leader, okay, my end game was real clear. I had to make this business perform. And so I was looking for different ways of achieving that, not to just be different for the sake of being different. One of the things that occurred to me is we need to make sure that the inside of the organization, the inside of the machine, had, had a high degree of viscosity. In other words, the amount of friction going on inside had to be reduced as close to zero as we could get. Why does that make sense? Well, because when you increase throughput in the business, right, what happens is performance goes up and revenues goes up. So this is highly strategic. So I came up with this notion called cleanse the inside. The whole idea was to find friction points and destroy them, increase the viscosity of the inside of the organization and performance goes. So so one a, a little cute, cool little program of cleanse the inside was something I call kill dumb rules. Now in my world, a dumb rule was a rule that made absolutely no sense to customers. They hated it, right? And 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 they didn't like us because we promulgated it, right? It was like a say no culture when you have rules that control human beings as opposed to enable them to do business with you. 
And so we had a lot of fun with this. I launched this dumb rules program in our business and we had we had like eight or 9,000 people. So it was not a small business. It was pretty big business. And so the whole objective was to seek out and destroy the rules and processes that didn't make any sense to customers. Real simple logic, right? As long as we were saying no, we were pissing them off and they're probably going to go and tell everybody else how crummy we were and performance would go down. If we could actually get rid of those rules, we would be saying yes to them. Chances are they'll love us for it. Tell other people, loyalty goes up, performance goes up. And so we had dumb rules committees throughout the entire organization. And their job was to, to identify dumb rules and get rid of them. Now, there were some rules that were required for legal reasons that we couldn't get rid of, but we reshaped them so that we were they, they were at least a little more customer friendly. Well, I have to tell you, the people in the organization loved this approach because they had been telling leadership long before me of, of rules that customers simply didn't like. But the reality was they were never listened to. So along comes Roy. Tell me what, how can I help? Tell me about the rules that suck. We're going to get rid of them, blah, blah, blah. Well, my goodness. I mean, they were empowered now, okay, to, to actually do what they've always wanted to do. I mean, frontline people are there to serve customers. If you just listen to them and make their job easier, they will give you tenfold back in return. And that's what happened. We had dumb rules committees. We had dumb rules competitions, Serena. We had, we had <laughs> celebrations around which team got rid of the stupidest rule. Now, I have to tell you, my fellow executives weren't really happy with the way I was approaching this because I was calling them dumb. I was calling them dumb rules, right? And so mm -hmm. I was admonished by some of them. I said, Roy, you really shouldn't be talking like that. And I said, well, okay, I'll change the names and I'll call them stupid things. But I will never, ever go and call them non-strategic activities because, you know, that's the left brain talking. Who's going to listen to that? What lit fires in people is here's a president calling things dumb and stupid, admitting it is time to change. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, employee engagement went through the roof. Like we did all sorts of studies on, and everybody talks about employee engagement. It's right. really easy. All you need to do is light fires in people, right? And convince them to go along your journey and their engagement goes, it went through the roof and loyalty retention rates went up. Simple little thing like dumb rules was amazingly strategic. And yet, I don't know of any other company in the world that does that today. Wow. Congratulations on that. Have you applied <laughs> it to any further businesses or was this the only time? No, I mean, I, I, do, I do advisory work for a lot of small businesses in particular, not just small, but they, they're tending to be the ones that want to listen. The larger ones think they've got it figured out. And so good on them. They don't have it figured out, but they good on them. So as part of the strategic planning process that I've actually created, I've got my own, which is unlike any other, part of that has got a dumb rules component because I asked them the question, okay, um, in, in the process of setting up some objectives for your business, do you have any rules that really piss customers off? And I asked them that, that way. And of course, at, at first they... Yeah, they don't really know whether you want to admit it. And I said, well, look, you're probably the only company that doesn't have a dumb rule. But let me tell you, <laughs> there's a lot of other ones out there and they finally admit it. And so, yeah, we do some work and it's a real simple process, right? You, you do an inventory of all your rules and procedures, right? Then you go shop them around the organization to find out which are causing a lot of pinch points 
with customers and those frontline people are the people you go to and they tell you, and then you start just working on that and you have fun with it. You celebrate, right? Every time you get rid of a dumb rule and you celebrate the, you, you celebrate the people who are responsible for that. And all of a sudden greasing the inside, increasing viscosity of the machine becomes mm -hmm. part of the culture. And for me, that was really important because I was getting away from a rules control dominated monopoly telephone business into a highly competitive, you need to move and shake and empower people and be prepared to change culture. And this one really was a simple little thing that really made a difference, really mm -hmm. did. Well, I can understand how the um, audacious part in large companies, uh, I've worked for a large telecommunications company, so I definitely uh, relate to what you, what you were describing here. And it, exactly around the same time that you were working um, in the industry. So uh, I really can relate to everything you're saying, but what about um, companies that are just starting out, they don't have the machinery oiled or no machinery at all or you know entrepreneurs that have some traction how do they become audacious to um to go towards business growth and not so much focus on the internal functioning of the machine is there anything in the audacious um, um terminology in the audacious book that you can share with us yeah, look at uh, excellent question. Thank you, thank you for that. Look at because I'm I'm dealing all the time with startup CEOs, etc. And uh, there's only one piece of advice I give them, and that is to differentiate, differentiate, differentiate. Be different, be different, be different. And what I mean by that is if your idea is not unique in a way that your target market cares about, stop. Don't spend money. Because all you're going to do is increase the herd by one and probably will be part of the roadkill in the startup business that says that, look, at within three years, you're going to be dead. You need a unique idea. OK, and, and it's not found by gargling Google. It's not found by copying what other people do. OK, and so a process that I've created is a strategic game planning process that you could literally create. Uh, your strategy to head west in, in 48 hours. Okay, so this is what I do. In 48 hours, you've got a game plan, okay, with growth objectives, with target markets identified, and more importantly, a differentiation strategy built around the fact that you want to be the only ones who do what you do. And so my only statement that I created is kind of a tool that is really caught on. I mean, it's on fire right now. It What it does is it fights against the tendency that most organizations have and startups have to say, well, we're better than, we're the best, we're number one, we're the market leader, we're the international market leader. None of those expressions, I call them claptrap, make any sense at all to customers because they're your view of yourself. To me, I call it the ultimate manifestation of a narcissistic view, okay, in business. And it is, it's your view of yourself that mm -hmm. you're better. Okay, well, the reality is the question that startups need to ask is, uh, how can I be different in a way that people care about? How can I answer the question, why should I do business with you, Roy, and not your competitor? Okay, so I created this tool called the only statement. It's really simple. It says, we are the only ones who, and you fill in the blanks. It's binary. 
Okay, it can be observed and it can be measured and it provides granularity to the declaration as to why you should do business with me and no one else. And so for the startup guys in your audience listening to this, you need to check this out, okay? Because if you are on the path, okay, of the herd, you will die. I'm sorry to say that, but you will die. You need to be different. You need to differentiate yourself in a way that your target market cares about, not the market. So you need to be focused, okay, on who has the latent potential to deliver your growth goals. And you need to be the only ones who do what you do. So focus on the only, and it will do you well. You can check out, I've written a lot about this on my blogs. I've been blogging this stuff since 2009. So there's tons of content out there that can help you. Take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, your website is called be different or be dead.com. That's correct. And so there's a blog, I got a blog pages. And as I say, there's, there's tons of content in there that I've been, I've been blogging since 2009. And it's interesting, like every time I go in and start writing about something while I'm working with organizations, I learn more stuff, right? I learn more about my, my stuff. And so I try and keep the content alive. The reason for the new book, quite frankly, was because it was time to, to get out there with another version because I'm not happy with the amount of change going on out there, Zarina. I'm just not. Businesses, individuals in their career, they're not stepping out the way they have to be. It's just the world of sameness and mediocrity is killing me. I, I, it keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night. And it needs to be changed. If, if we are to succeed as individuals and if the world is to move forward, okay, in terms of uh, providing value for people in our society, you, you don't do it by being part of a herd. You don't. Well, what do you think of the statement that actually most people believe that... Uh... Technology is the driver of change. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, it depends how you want to answer the question. Does technology drive change? Yes, it does. The question is, does it drive change that's meaning meaningful for you? So I go back and say, in, in as far as I'm concerned, technology is a tactic. It's a means to an end. The mm -hmm. actual end, you need to describe and define for yourself. Okay, so if you come up with a head west strategy, Okay, that requires that you deploy technology A. So you really need artificial intelligence to perform a given function to enable you to satisfy your end game. By all means, integrate it, but never be driven by AI, okay, to apply it to everything that you do. I mean, it's like somebody saying to me, how do you like my social media strategy, Roy? And I would say to them, I have no idea. I do not have an opinion. And the reason for that is I need to understand what you're trying to achieve. And with that as a context, I now have enough information that I can give you an answer that says, how well do I think your social media strategy relates to your end game? And I would say the same to do with, with technology. Technology for technology's sake, for most of us, doesn't work. There's very few Steve Jobs around, okay? There may be the odd, but for most of us mortals, we need a game plan, okay? And then we need to look at the available tools, and there are lots of them. Okay, out there, what what kind of tools do we need to enable us to move towards our end game and then start to deploy them? But to start out saying, I'm going to build a technology, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to build a, a, a business around this technology is nonsensical. And the reason for that is you're no different than anybody else because everybody has access to the same technology. Mm -hmm. So come on, help me understand. 
If you and I are building a business around the same technology, how am I going to stand out, right, in a way that people care about if I have to rely on that technology? So it's the way we integrate it into our value proposition in a way that's different than everybody else. That's the challenge. And unfortunately, I'll say it again, I'm not seeing a whole lot of excellence around that notion. Mm -hmm. Mm, the way I perceive it uh, from our talk so far is that it is basically a focus on how to, how to solve the problem of the customer better. Am I coming close to what it boils down to, the strategy, yeah. how to solve the customer's problem better? I would say I would only make one change to that statement, okay? How to solve, how to provide value that the customer wants in a way that nobody else does. Mm -hmm. That's the challenge. It could be a problem or it simply could be an opportunity. Whatever you do to play into the customer space, requirement space, you need to be unique. You can't do it the way everybody else. And you can't be better. You can't be best. Serena, you have to be the only one that does what you do playing into that space. That's the challenge that your audience has. That's the challenge that every entrepreneur has, every business person has, is first of all, like I keep asking the question, what do your customers care about? I don't care what they need because everybody's playing into the need space. I wanna know what they care about. I wanna know what they lust for. I wanna know what they crave. I wanna know what their secrets are. And the reason for that is all the answer to that question is highly uh, sort of emotional, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, in in context, it's how they feel. The reason I want to play into that space is first of all, there's no competition; nobody plays in that space. And secondly, it's price insensitive. So if I can figure out what Zarina lusts for, and I can satisfy that in a way that nobody else does, she's going to buy from me. Okay, she's going to buy because it's a personalized kind of solution or, or requirement to take advantage of something that she craves for that nobody else is doing. And she's going to she's going to be in there and she's going to tell others what a great experience that was. It's got nothing to do with needs. It's got everything to do with feelings. How do you feel? How, what do you crave for? Right. What's your innermost desire? And as marketers, we need to learn to play into that. And that's another huge learning piece that I, I write an awful lot about uh, uh, in, the, in the marketing space because we're, we, we tend to be boring. We're still, you know, cutting prices. We're still based, you know, on unique value propositions that aren't unique at all because they use claptrap like better and best. And we got a huge way to go. But you're absolutely right. We need to be customer centric in deciding what we do uniquely. Like I keep saying, I really don't care about the color of your hair. I don't care about your pronouns. I don't care about your sexual preferences. Okay. What I care about is what you're trying to do in a special way to satisfy the needs of others. And that's the key thing. The operative word is others. We're here to serve other people, not to take care of ourselves and declare how different we are, unless it resonates with what you said, unless it resonates with the customer. We need to do a lot of work in that regard. Mm -hmm. and, and let's go back to your target market now, the, the small companies that you like working with and helping. How do they find within 48 hours what the pain point, uh, what the emotional need is of, of, of their client? How do they figure it out without extensive marketing research, without all the uh, fancy uh, reports and researches? <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is where I deviate from, from uh, standard methodologies, okay, that require a, a lot of that 
and requires subject matter experts and three weeks of his planning session to yeah. figure out what that Primary looks like, etc. Questionnaires, oh, yeah. face-to-face. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I look at, I just cut through all of that and I say, look at what I want to do is I want to get the leadership team of the business in a room. Okay, just the leadership team, because I think there's enough intellectual property in the leaders to, to do what we have to do to create a just about right plan. Okay, this isn't about precision. So my whole process is based on getting the leaders into a room and creating a plan, which I call a strategic game plan, by asking three simple questions. The first question is, how big do you want to be? That's a question about uh, top line revenue growth. How much revenue do you want in 24 months? This isn't a five-year view because the fourth year never shows up anyways, right? It's a joke, okay. right? And not it. Not only that, it's not execution focused. My whole approach to the world is to, to figure out how to get to a place where we can start executing, executing, executing. Why? Because execution drives performance. And don't forget, we got to a billion dollars. We didn't do that by intellectualizing ourselves. Mm-hmm. We did that. By executing. So the first thing is, how big do you want to be? So if you're at a if you're at a million, my question is, uh, Zarina, where do you want to be in 24 months? Do you want to be at two million? Do you want to be at five million? Do you want to be at 10 million? Now the reason I start with the numbers is the numbers ends up driving the character and the risk of the strategy. We build a strategy to deliver the numbers. Okay, so let's say for example, you decided that okay, I want to get to five million in 24 months. And the plan, by the way, is 24 periods of 30 days. That's how we think about the plan. Why do we think about it that way? Because it keeps your execution focused, right? So my, my question is, okay, do you know how to get to 5 million? If you say, yeah, I think I got a pretty good idea, Roy. I say, okay, the number's not good enough. Because if you know how to get there, you have no motivation to do anything different. Mm-hmm. You have no motivation to innovate and create. And so the whole point of how big is to get people stretched to the point that they have to be innovative. They have to be creative. They can't get there on the basis of what worked in the past, okay? So it's a bit of a spin there. Uh, My view is if you say, I don't know, that's a good motivation to innovate, right? And so I look for in leaders, if they do know, then we keep working on the number, we get the number up because they're they're sandbagging me we need we need a, a, a basically a, a more audacious goal. That's how big. Second question says, okay, you agreed to five million. Where are you going to get it? Okay, so we're looking for customer groups that have the latent potential to deliver the five million. We're not looking at the market. I want to make this point to your audience. The definition of target markets is all based on how much revenue growth you're looking for. That's it. It ain't based on your competencies because we're not there yet. It ain't based on your skills. It's based on revenue. Okay. So let's talk about that. And ideally you want as few customer groups as possible. Why? Well, because you have limited resources. You don't have an infinite number of resources to chase everybody. So ideally, and this is the, this is Nirvana, right? Ideally you'd like to get that 5 million from one customer group, not likely going to happen. We start out that way and we try and minimize that. Okay, third piece is we do a deep dive in those customer groups. And I'm getting to the answer to your question. And we asked, I asked the question, what do they crave? Here's where the hard work begins. Okay, so if you've got two customer groups that you want to focus on to get to your revenue goal, we need to figure out what they crave. Okay, not what they need, what they crave. 
And then we need to find a customer group by their craving, or is there a different behavioral um, definition? How do you define a customer group before you ask what they crave? Yeah, it can be based on typically it's it's based on what your business looks like. Like for example, uh, I just did some work for a um, a lawn care company. Okay, and and their target market, uh, the business that they were in, was serving strata corporations. Okay, doing landscaping and that for, for strata corporations. So my question to them was, okay, is are strata corporations going to deliver your how big? And if the answer to that is yes, can we narrow that down geographically? Because if we can, they're fast and easy. You get to them easier. Don't forget, we got a 24-month goal here. Okay, you need run rate to get up on revenues. You can't be spending time to have an 18-month selling cycle, okay? If you do that, you'll never hit your revenue targets. And so we start out by looking at the business and just asking the question, okay, what are ways that we can narrow the focus Okay, within your business, because we don't want to increase, we don't want to, we don't want to destroy it. We don't want to blast it up. We want to have some sort of sense, although in time, we're probably going to reframe it. So in that case, we said, okay, we're not going to do business, okay, with strata corporations in these geographic areas. We're going to restrict. And it just went, aha, yeah. And so that was it. So now what we said is, what does stratas really care about? Well, you know what we discovered? What they care about wasn't really lawns and landscaping. What they really cared about is how to develop their property. So all of a sudden, we were talking about property property development. So we started reframing their business around what they cared about. And so basically, we ended up creating a strategy that, that was targeted at stratas to help them develop their property. Mm-hmm. One of the components was lawn care, but it was only one component. So when they saw this, they went, wow, okay, like that, that takes us into new businesses. I said, yep, new businesses with new skills, new competence, et cetera. And that led to the thing that said, okay, now, now we need to be clear that we're the only ones doing that. So we need an only statement. And we built an only statement that said that the only service provider, right, offering a customized solutions to help stratas in Ladner, British Columbia, develop their property. That was the strategy. And I'll tell you what, we spent then uh, a, a full half day developing objectives around that in terms of what are the things that they need to do, like packaging solutions, right? With lawn care, with other things, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically find, getting a plan in place to, to execute on that. But that's kind of like a real life example of how eventually we got in 48 hours a very robust and plan that was different than what they had when they walked into this. But it was all framed around how big do you want to be? Who do you want to serve? How are you going to compete and win? And that latter question really is let's develop an only statement, right? Targeted the customer groups that we've decided to serve. Yeah. It was awesome. It was so awesome. Well, thank you for this story. I was actually about to ask you about a few examples and the outcomes of uh, of companies applying your, um, it's not a theory, it's a methodology. <laughs> um, is there another example that you could share, maybe a recent example of what the result was? Was this a recent uh, consulting that you did for, for this? Yeah, mm-hmm. these, these are all pretty recent. I mean, the thing is, it's funny how it happens. They just come up in pockets. I, I did about four months ago. I did a work uh, work with a company in in uh, Ontario. 
that were in the boat selling business. So what they did is they sold boats to dealers. And so they asked me to come in and, and create a strategic game plan. And again, it was the same format, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to, just to drop to the bottom line, what we ended up with, okay, was a strategy that reframed them, just like the one I, I, I just described. We reframed them into being the only service partner that helped boat dealers grow their business. And so when we probe, what, what is a boat dealer? Because they sold to dealers, right? What do they crave? I said to them, you know, don't tell me they want boats that float, right? They just expect that those boats are going to float and the electronics are going to work. What do they really want? And it came out that says, look at the biggest problem these dealers have is growth. They need to find ways of growing their business. And I said, okay, is there any other boat supplier that plays in that space? Answer was no. I said, okay, why don't you guys consider right, being um, a solution provider into boat dealers to help them grow their business. So think about yourself really in the business development function with your anchor product being a boat. And they went, huh. And so we created a strategy around that. Uh, and they're the only ones that do that. And and uh, I haven't followed up with with the economics, et cetera, of what, what they're doing. But anecdotally, I'm, I'm hearing for their vice, vice president uh, that says, yeah, they're, they're smoking because they're surprising everybody out there who still think upon themselves as uh, supplying boats and they're not in the supplying boats business they're in the business development business using boats as an anchor product and it's working oh, wow. so it's just yeah but but so why it, did it they didn't work need, for everybody sorry why would they need then the the dealers at all can't they jump over the dealers and just sell <clears> the boats if they're helping anyhow grow the market well it's a it's a possible business model they've just simply chosen not to do that they've okay. said they're in a in the business so they're who Mm -hmm. who to serve their their who to serve is uh, is a dealer and in this case we we did the same thing geographically okay we shrunk the 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 the, the definition of that so that they had more focus geographically on them faster and easier to get sales cycle reduced but the selling proposition changed completely they weren't flogging boats they were trying to uh, come up with with solutions to help you know the dealer grow their business so that was just a choice they made. And I think it was the right one. The end user thing would have been much more complicated. And quite frankly, I don't think they would have been able to come up with, with an only statement trying to sell directly to end users. Yeah. Uh, they just wouldn't have because they would be just like anybody else flogging a boat. So now mm -hmm. you're dealing with the B to C marketplace, which wouldn't have been as effective as their choice of going B to B. Tell us a bit about your book, uh, Roy. It's called... What is it called? It's it called Be Different or Be Dead. This is the seventh book, by the way. Uh, be Different or Be Dead, The Audacious, Unheard of Ways I Took a Startup to a Billion in Sales. And what it is is basically a how-to book that represents a compendium of the sorts of things that you and I have discussed in the last while, plus the other things that that I basically did in in, in business to to aid in the growth of this particular internet enterprise to get to a billion in sales. So, you know, it's organized around marketing things, sales things, strategy things, customer service things, leadership things. And so if you look at the book, you can dive in to say, well, I'd be kind of interested in what Roy's audacious leadership thing is all about. So good. Okay. Just go to that chapter. So I've, I've tried to structure it in a way to make it easy for people to dive in and get out, dive in and get out. So it's a how-to book. 
the point I want to make with your audience, this is not a book about blue oceans. This is a book about red oceans, mm -hmm. okay, on the coalface between customers, right, and a company with practical proven ways of growing your business. And so for you that, that are used to reading a lot of textbooks, good, read this one because it's different than everything else you've read. Put the other ones down. I'm not saying they're not important. They got you where you are, but they're not going to get you where you need to get to. Where you're going to get to is going to be based on what works in the real world with biasness, with competitors, with constant change, with, uh, with uncertainty and unpredictability. Those were the factors that I lived in to the pain tolerance we talked about earlier. And so go give that a try. I've also got a website that talks a little bit more about it. You can check out vdifferentorvdead.com and email me, roy.osing at gmail.com. I'm always happy to have a conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, if we can end on a note or, of um, where would you like to take this, uh, this whole movement? Uh, what are you aiming at? Yeah, so if you think, and this is my math background, right? So if you think about a normal distribution curve, you know, the bell curve, everybody's familiar with that, right? So it's got this huge glut in the middle, right? And then it's got the tails of the distribution, okay? The be different people are out on the right-hand side of the distribution, make up a really small percentage of the total population who are fundamentally contrarian, right? They're outlandish. They're looking for different ways. They're pushing change, all that kind of stuff. The majority of the population uh, population sit in the middle of the bell curve around the around the y axis. What I would like to see, my 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 mission in life would be to take that uh, I'm going to call them glut of the population and move them three points to the right. Can you imagine the impact that would have in the world if we could move three percent of the majority of the population towards the right end of the distribution curve? where being different became uh, in a way that people care about. It's not about the color of your hair. I want to say that again. Yeah. Or the length of it. Don't care. Get them towards the right, doing different things that people care about. Can you imagine the impact in society? Can you imagine the impact in the economics of the world? <clears throat> so that's what I would like to see. So if you, you know, being an altruist, and I don't know how, how, how the heck to even manage that or measure it. You can't do it, but, but, you know, having conversations like this, I hope, make a difference to a, a number of people that are at least willing tomorrow morning to ask themselves, what can I do differently today? How can I approach today in a different way that makes people around me happy? How can I serve others in a way that nobody else does? That whole mindset <clears throat> begins with an individual being prepared to step out and I hope that starts with conversations like this. Thank you so much. It was a true pleasure and uh, with very valuable input. I'm actually going to head to your website now to read your blog because you, you got me started. <laughs> yay, yay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so well, much, good. Roy. You're very welcome. And thank you for having me. I'm, I'm honored. Thank you for listening to Grow and Learn. We hope that you found our podcast informative, engaging, and inspiring. Our mission is to help you keep growing and learning, and we hope that our conversations and insights have provided you with practical advice and useful perspectives. If you're looking for personalized support and guidance to help you achieve your personal or professional growth objectives, I offer a range of services to help. 
As a trusted management partner and mentor, I work with businesses in the process of transformation, looking for new streams of business as well as M&A. With an extensive professional network of experts and mentors, I can bring on board the right person or team based on the specific needs of the company I'm working with. To learn more about the services I offer and how I can help you achieve your goals, visit my website at growandlearn.org. You can also reach out to me via email or social media. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Grow and Learn, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback is important to us and it helps us to continue to create content that is relevant and valuable to our listeners. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to sharing more insights and perspectives with you in the future.